0: Welcome to the next part of our three-part series exploring the Panjoy Massacre of 2012 as seen and experienced by James Alexander and Brandon Chong. It is important to note that the views and opinions expressed by James and Brandon do not represent the opinions or views of the Panjoy podcast. Any retelling or clarification on the account of the hosts are simply for the purpose of clarity and do not reflect our personal opinions. We have gone to great lengths to conceal the identities of others involved and in no way intend to levy accusations or suggestions of guilt towards any individual. For more information, including a copy of the official 15-6 investigation and other supporting documents, visit www.thepanjoipodcast.com slash massacre.
1: So we're back for part three of our interview with Brandon and James talking about the uh, the back end of this whole Balambai, Panjway massacre, whatever you want to call it, involving uh, Staff Sergeant Bales. So when we left off with you guys last time, you we were talking about how when you got back to the U.S., you got off the plane and literally on the tarmac at deck, was an officer waiting to give you the... Uh, no contact orders with bells, right?
2: Uh, yeah, they, pretty, they, they brought us to the terminal. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> and put us into a room and made us explain to us what was the, what was the no contact orders were and yeah. that we had to sign them essentially. <laughs> yeah.
1: So after, uh, after you guys got back and you started segueing into the, the part where the army is actually building its investigation. You know, what was that like for you guys? I mean, I'm assuming that you weren't just shipped back to your unit, or were you?
3: Yeah, we were. We literally got <laughs> shipped back to the unit. Uh, the two the two other NCOs that were detained went to separate battalions, but all of us went back to the same company initially, to, well, the rear D company altogether. <laughs>
1: what, were, what were the reasons that they gave why those guys were detained?
3: Um, Alcohol use, and I believe lying under oath was one right. of them. Mm. And, and so,
2: um, they were both bust down uh, ranks. Um, and then out of the army by the time the, um, by the time of August, 2013, when the final uh, verdict came in. Mm -hmm. So they were out of the army and they were given immunity, um, in regards for their testimony as well by the military. So,
3: well, the one that got bumped down also got a lateral promotion, like a month after he got demoted. So. There's that the yeah. well. because army
2: right yeah
3: <laughs> yeah,
2: <think> yeah. <laughs> hey it, look at this guy's ERB <laughs> yeah right <laughs> he just got home look at him we got to promote him yeah it's like okay all right
0: sure and what one yeah. of those individuals is the one that woke you up and then made the, also made the comment in the defect, correct yes right okay yeah we'll get back to that here in a little bit yeah <laughs> um so you guys are back you're you're, you're in your beard attachment which anybody who's been a beard attachment knows that that fucking blows
2: it's purgatory um, it was yeah. So we get in the van from the, not to take you back to the airport, but we get in the van. This is how surreal the experience was. We get in the van from the airport. We drive through Seattle traffic. (laughs) (laughs) We get to the, the, the battalion. Um, we, our stuff is in like, there's a bunch of, uh, soldiers there that are unloading our gear for us. Like we're like, okay, you know, this is kind of weird. They do, so they do a head count and then they get us inside to, um, where there's this FRG has set up this little thing inside the battalion classroom, which is like, thank you for your service kind of thing. And it was like posters and none of us, like we're all mostly single soldiers. (laughs) So we're like, we've never seen any of you before. We have never, I've never been to an FRG meeting. We have no understanding who any of this, any of you are, we don't know what, you know, um, but we're all in a room and we're, like, eating cake, essentially.
1: Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, and it was... Welcome home, It boys. was kind of crazy. Yeah.
2: yeah. And then they uh, moved us. They The first sergeant that was in charge was awesome, um, in my opinion. And he moved us to the barracks. And we all moved into the same third floor wing of the barracks. So we basically were given rooms so that were all right next to each other, um, isolated away from anybody else with our own floor um, mm. for... <laughs> The, until everyone got back from deployment. So that was like five yeah. months of that. And that was kind of crazy. But
1: So yeah. during that five months before everybody came back, I mean, what were you guys doing?
3: Uh, well, <laughs> initially they they fed us a line that, hey, you know, you guys left Afghanistan. It's not your fault. Like what happened is You know, you weren't associated with all that. All we're going to do is have you guys, you know, getting in shape and going to schools. At this time, right. I'd been in the army for about two years, so my hopes and dreams had already been crushed. So I couldn't really believe him, and it was a hundred percent not true anyway. Literally, all they had us doing was pulling CQ and doing all these minuscule, minuscule details. Sure. And it was just like the most demoralizing thing because I'd been in the platoon for two years, so half of our platoon is still in Afghanistan, hmm. and then I'm at home pulling CQ for a bunch of dudes who, you know, were smoking hash or, you know, doing yeah. drugs and didn't even deploy. So it was right. just. I don't know.
2: Yeah, and yeah. for the
0: our civilian listeners, the the rear D is rear detachment. So when a battalion deploys forward, they always leave an element back because there's some people that are injured or they're being kicked out of the army or they're almost on the way out of the army or you know people that are coming in and out of the battalions. So there's always a, a very small element in the back, probably a company size, I'd say.
2: Yeah, it was. I was shocked how many how yeah. many folks it was. I was. Yeah, like, it's a decent
0: size number of people that don't mm-hmm. go. I was like, why, and, are, uh, why aren't
2: you guys uh, in Bellumby? We could have used the help, you know? Like, uh, yeah. there's 11 of us. You know, it would have been great if it had 14.
0: But that, that rear detachment's purpose is, like, just to handle the stuff at home. Um, to, to pull CQ and to do all this stuff. But it's usually dirt bags. It's usually the people that, you know, are, were, found a way out. they're being kicked out or they were found a way out of the deployment and they're hurt or something. So to be part of your detachment and not being a dirt bag is incredibly frustrating yeah because you you know you don't belong in that group and that group knows that you don't belong with them so if I were to venture to guess I would say you didn't hang out a whole lot with your fellow rear attachments yeah
2: <laughs> no most of the time um, we would see them would be we would stop drinking around four in the morning uh, in, pre- in preparation <laughs> for a PT PT formation Um right. PT formation would start at 0630 six and uh, we would then go and conduct our own squad or platoon PT. We had a platoon sergeant who was supposed to be in charge of us, but we gave him no, absolutely no respect. And that's one of the like, shamefully, shamefully, like we should have treated it much better than we did. I had a personal run in with him several times and like, like it should have, we should have treated him better than we, than we did. But, you know, it was just like we were projecting all of this stuff onto him, you know? Honestly, show. I think yeah. for a lot of us,
3: we had lost uh, pretty much all respect for NCOs. At least I know I did. After the whole Bales yeah. thing, I was just like, yeah. had yeah. kind of an authority issue. And no, I'm not saying I was like a rebel without a cause, but I just kind of had an attitude issue towards NCOs for sure. Especially the ones on rear D. Yeah. Right. That's and
2: understandable. It's, it's therapeutic, right. honestly.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's totally, totally understandable.
2: Yeah, it was just like, and we would play basketball during the day. Sometimes There's a basketball hoop outside, and uh, right outside of be- uh, Black Horse Company, and we'd be out there um, pretty much all day. Uh, if somebody wanted to um, make us do a detail, they knew where to come find us. But other than that, it was like we kind of like, leave us alone. Uh, and we'll, mm. we, when we first got to, first got to the unit, they gave us uh, keys to a TMP van and like let us go to the <laughs> let us go to the the. The shop at and stuff and like that was amazing but yeah. you know within like three days that was gone so <laughs> <laughs> turns out that van was probably just to a- escort us home right like now that sure, you look yeah. back on it right it's yeah. like had nothing it wasn't for us it was you know it was to transport us from legally you know so so
0: at what point did the vacation end that it really start to realize that you were kind of being isolated and I don't know good,
2: oh. we, we went on leave and we came back and then we took a pt test and <laughs> I just, I was like so mad that we were taking this PT test. And I never had ever cared because I had the time was like in really good shape, but I did not, had not been running, obviously. Sure. So I was like, okay, then like, why are we doing this? And had like a really hard time understanding why we were doing it. And eventually it was like, hey, because the army says you have to have a PT test. I'm like, okay, sure. Gotcha. <laughs> so we take a PT test. You know, I'm like, I get counseled because I don't like, I don't put maximum effort into the PT test and I'm just like, all right, I guess I got to just change my tune or I'm just going to keep getting counseled. Like it's to the point now where like, I can't just keep being mad at the army about this. Like I have to take some kind of, I have to take responsibility for my own actions and like that's, that was the change for me at least. But yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) sort of,
0: (laughs) (laughs) um, I mean at some point you guys started to get singled out for your, your involvement. Not right. in the actual you know, obviously you weren't there with him when that happened, but you were there. And they uh I think when we were talking before in our pre interview process that the unit kind of pushed you away. You kinda you guys kinda became pariahs, especially as the as the trial started to heat up. Right. Um you said so they started to split people up and then as the as the trial came came forward that you know, you personally felt that their your career options had been pretty much eliminated so you can talk can talk about that kind of stuff how how the army sure. started to treat you guys leading up so, to the trial and what involvement you guys had in the trial
2: the unit came home and the trial was still ongoing right like there we we like that's what that's what people think that like this timeline it like succinctly ends like this was an ongoing overlapping process right. that would be like a random thursday you would have john henry brown's assistant come up to you and be like Hey, we were doing a meeting in this, in the, you know, the battalion classroom or whatever. And she'd be in there and be like asking us questions if we want to like sign sworn statements. And like all these kind of, like this would be like a random days and you would have no like awareness of this. It was just your responsibility just to to stay present. Like it was your responsibility to be able to answer these questions at any point in time from anyone. Yeah. Um, some of us, I never went back to BICO. I stayed in HHC in, in S3 when the unit returned. Um, so I don't know that maybe linked to some of the comments that I made in the command climate survey about, you know, what life was like in, uh, as being a single soldier, uh, in Black Horse Company at the time, but it was, you know, I mean, it was definitely a pretty miserable situation for most of us, right. That were lived in the barracks. So, right. you know, I, I stayed in HHC, um, and really once the unit came home, that was it. I mean, once those guys returned from Afghanistan, um it was, you know, some like we were all broken apart, the squads were because we, you know, had different uh task work. So that right. was really it. But we all had to stay somewhat available um for any kind of uh, you know, legal meetings, whether it was with uh, Colonel Morse, who was the prosecu prosecuting attorney, or you know, um like we we, we had we had a Chong, I don't know if you remember, we had to go over there and meet with them in the, uh, in the room and they gave us like a debrief and ask us questions. And it's like, where do you want to start? You know, like, what do you, what, what kind of questions do you want to ask us? And they were like, well, we may need to figure out who who asked this and that. And it's just like, they were just looking for witnesses to something that they already knew that they had all the evidence they needed for, right? right? So it's like, right. we They're were kind of- trying to of, shore up their case. Right, there was no reason, like there was no legal reason for us like in lo- as long as we weren't going to say anything like crazy like they knew sure. you know like some conspiracy theory or something like that like they knew that you know that we were just accessories you know they don't need us necessarily for- to like right. tie the case together so
0: so this period of time was was the case at trial or were they preparing to take it to trial because this this would be you know August 2012
2: yeah so the Bales didn't get to JBLM until October 2012. Okay. So he was in, he was in Afghanistan the whole time? No, he was in Leavenworth. So they brought him. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they flew him like by like the 16th, I think he was in Leavenworth already. Okay. Hmm. March 16th. (laughs) Like he went straight to Leavenworth. Like, Yeah. yeah, it was like, yeah. So. Eventually, he made it to JBLM um, in October, but the trial didn't end until August of 2013. Okay. So, yeah, that's what I was thinking. It it's was... just like the whole time we were told to, – we were basically – both sides could interview us if they wanted to. We had to give up our phone number and a, a phone roster, of course, and that that, ro- that roster was then used to track us down. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you probably couldn't do a whole lot of traveling or do anything (laughs) during that period of time. Or
2: go to a different unit or redeploy or, because we were, at that point, we were more valuable than the mission, which is one of the quotes that, uh, (laughs) one of the great quotes that we got um, told, (laughs) you guys are more valuable in the mission right now. You know, you don't need to go, there's no reason for you to go back. Um, One of the other quotes that we got was, um, you know, we had been in more ticks than the rest of the at the time the, then the rest of the brigade combined and so like that was supposed to make us feel better about <laughs> not staying in Afghanistan. it was just like really yeah it's a really abstract way of thinking but yeah those mm-hmm. are some of the briefings that we got from the higher ups yeah and, yeah
0: um so as as this kind of time period goes on uh, and I'm sure you know it's here and there uh, and frustrating that you can't just kind of move on with your life. Sure. Um, did you did you have opportunities to address your concerns to the investigators about the, the possible role of other NCOs in the uh, in the attack?
2: No. <laughs> we we talked to them, but the from when we talked to them, nothing further from the CID conversation and the fifteen six conversation went further. Right. It was never talked mm-hmm. about again stateside. It was never it was never hey did you see this guy what did you see none of those kind of interviews even happened they didn't they didn't look at any of our videos they didn't look at any of our any of the stuff that we had collected they didn't look at any of it and I, right. that's like one of the because they didn't need to right because the case is such a slam dunk right. in their mind that like because they have these other they've given immunity to these other nco's already who we find out later you know would like had some knowledge of the killing Right. Like you can say at what point or how much knowledge, but they had some knowledge that Bales had killed people because he admitted to them earlier in the night that he had done so. Right. Like.
0: Right. And that's one thing so, I think we, 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 neglected to mention in the, uh, in the second episode. And when we talked about the timeline of what Bales did is that Bales left VSP went to, uh, he went to Alcozai first, correct? Correct. The, um then came based off back. based off
2: the gunshots we we right. know that based off of like the gunshots from the directions yeah. from the where the ops end said they heard the shots fired right. first yeah mm-hmm. so
0: then he came back to the vsp after right. he had been outside the wire came back right. in the wire right uh, theoretically rearmed you know refitted mm-hmm. and then went back out again
3: right well before he went back out the second time he pointed his barrel in one of our other NCOs nose and was like, well first of all he said i went and killed some people
0: yeah, told him goes,
3: point blank. Like, no, nah, man, what are you talking about? Then he goes, "We'll smell my barrel," and he puts a barrel yep. of his gun in his nose and was,
2: you know, take a sniff of this, and then went back out.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So somebody Sm- knew what he
2: had been doing. Yeah. yeah, right. That's what I'm saying. Some knowledge of right. the situation. Right, and right. then
0: he went back out to the south, and that's Correct. where he did yeah. actually. From based on you know the the 6 the majority of his killing was to the south. Right. Um, Correct. On the second trip, and.
2: Yeah, 11, 11 family members, 11 in one house, people yeah. in, in one house, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, Which is just completely unthinkable. I mean, and we're not right. going to go into the details of the 15-6 here because honestly, it's it's disgusting and I'm not going to give him any kind of platform for yeah, what he did. Yeah, of course. Um, But, you know, women, children, desecration, just absolutely horrible shit that he did.
2: Lighting people on fire, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, horrible stuff. Down. Um. And he, he did it twice, essentially. He came back mm-hmm. in the wire twice. Right. Um, and, you know, obviously he told that NCO what he did. And I don't know, maybe the NCO didn't believe him or not. Um, but there was obviously some knowledge. And we talked a little bit in the pre-interviews about, and I mentioned in episode one that we would give you a chance to kind of tell us what you think happened. Mm. Um, so I wanted to give you each separately a chance to, to uh, tell us what you think happened that night so uh uh brandon what what'd you go first
3: um so honestly i think that he was a little upset about the id strike and he didn't feel we were aggressive enough when it came to that um i know just so i i don't think it was premeditated i don't believe but i do think that he went out the first time with someone else and then came back in and then left again the second time on his own, only because an ANA soldier had seen two individuals come in. And then, you know, like 15, 20 minutes later, one leave again. And then also just kind of the weird things that were happening in the B-Hut, you know, with the smells and the and just kind of the reactions and the things that were said just kind of makes me believe there was more than one person. But I don't have anything concrete to base that on.
0: And when you say that another person went with him, uh, you're suggesting that it was another Amer- another American.
3: Yes, another American, another conventional infantryman.
0: Another invention- conventional infantryman uh, and another NCO. Yes. Um, and do you think that that is something that the Army explored at all?
3: I would have to say they may have because this man got immunity. So I just feel like, I mean... I feel like I don't. I mean, yes, I do. I do, but I don't think anything uh, came of it.
0: Uh, and for our listeners, uh, that is mentioned in the fifteen six, that there was the report from the Afghan soldier of the two soldiers returning from outside the wire and one departing, um, and then that there was also concern amongst the squad that was relayed to CID that they believed that another individual may have been involved. But those are the only two references in the entire 156 to the potential of a second shooter. Um, there is pretty pronounced third-party reporting, um, and the, the link to that will be in the description and also in the show notes, um, that the Afghans on the scene witnessed multiple shooters. Um, there's no number given from those third-party reportings uh, that came from the local Afghans, just that uh, they reported multiple shooters. Um. So that's that's kind of a third source suggesting that there was a there was another American or another soldier. They didn't necessarily specify Americans. Um. James, I mean, what's what's your take?
2: Yeah, I mean, 100% concur with Brandon. Um, to my mind, the way I was thinking, we know that Bales was drinking with the other NCOs that night. We know that they watched. DVDs together. We know that they watched a movie, Man on Fire, together. We know that Bales had multiple weapons on him. It's not beyond the realm of possibility for for me to suggest that Bales and another NCO went out to the first village. The other NCO basically acted in a support role while Bales went inside and sort of interrogated the folks. It goes bad. Bale starts killing people. The other NCO freaks out, right? Right. They come back. Hey, we got to go back. We got to go back. We got to go back. Bale's, as he's known to have said to Brandon and I multiple times, I can cover up anything. Like, don't worry about it. I got this. Like, that was his whole thing. Put it on my back. That's why I like the reference to the Ruck March stuff early. Like, he would carry the whole 150 pounds if he needed to. You know what I mean? That's just the kind of guy he was. So if he's looking out for someone else that he has a close relationship with, it makes complete sense to me that they went out together, did the killings. The other one gets cold feet. Bale goes, I got you. Don't worry. You go back. You shower. You change. You get, you know, you get ready when, and then I'll go out again and I'll go make a scene, right? Because he didn't burn bodies in Alacoza. He only did that in Najibianne. Right. you know what I mean. He only acted in a much more heinous way, based on the reporting that we have um, in Najibin. Right, so it goes to make you make you think like it's an easy way for him to like rationalize being more brutal because now he's on his own without somebody else there to like oversee him,
0: and potentially having some sort of protection mindset that I'm doing right. this to exactly. to cover for my buddy
2: exactly whereas the first village the first place they went is the clo- one of the closest areas where we had people that we right. you know would interact with so it's the very one of the very first compounds right so if you're you know going to go to Alakozai, that would be one of the first village one of the first places mm-hmm. you go whereas Najibian, it seemed to that hike. Yeah. yeah it's it's a, that's a distance to go whereas western Belumbi and other spots were much closer right where they had people Sure. So it just kind of didn't make sense from that. It's kind of like a distraction to buy time. And that's what I thats what I always think about. Like, if you're going to be walking out those roads, like that, like those IED, I mean, we found, you know, five or six IEDs every time we would go out on the roads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So to walk those roads at night. Now, part of me also thinks that some Taliban Taliban members were killed as well, that they may have um, hit a house and kill some Taliban members, and that those bodies are not reported. So I think that there is a part of this too that the families reported the killings, but if there are Taliban members sleeping in you know empty homes in random places, it's possible that there, there are, that there are more where more bodies or more victims in the in the massacre that we just don't know about. You know what I mean? Sure. So,
0: so I your mean, thought is that he picked a, a village that was further away, right, for the second iteration to buy time.
2: Absolutely. To to make sure that it was like get rid of you know the you know my computer get because that's the first thing he asked for is his computer right so he's like looking for things to destroy sure. like evidence of you know his actions. Um, the images he looked at on the computer it turns out you know we learned through the fifteen six were um, you know twenty dead bodies is the image that he kept looking at you know so. If you think about that you put that in alone that's terrible but you put that in this context it makes it just you know like wow this almost seems like this was a mission right to get to a certain number right and it just it's just yeah Yeah. it's just to but you know to think of all that in context is just you know so if
0: i can i'd like i'd like to summarize your guys's thoughts and i want to clarify that um there is no concrete evidence Um, no physical evidence that we know of, you know, that we know that exists, that, 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 um, that proves this. And this is your beliefs based on your experience and observations.
2: Yeah. And there's nobody else. Yeah. (laughs) There's nobody else in the world that would have those beliefs and observations. Right. Yeah. And you're as close to as it gets. Right. Exactly.
0: Um, and that your belief is that that morning that he, he and these two other NCOs spent the night drinking, partying, whatever watching movies. At some point, him and uh, NCO X left the base, went to Al-Kozai, um, and committed the first round of, of murders. And that, that NCO either got cold feet or something, and they came back. That NCO shaved, showered, put on a fresh uniform, put on the patches that on a top that he hadn't worn in months. Um... Basically, cleaned himself up into into such a fashion that nobody else on the base looked like. No one was dressed like that, or that that clean, or that right. clean shaven.
2: He was a sore thumb. Yeah.
0: Right. So he comes back and does that, and while he's doing that, um, Staff Sergeant Bales has left again, based on the observations of uh, one of the Afghan Army gate guards that two Americans came in and one left. So they they came in, NCO X went and did his personal hygiene. Staff Sergeant Bales left again and went back down to the south, um, to Nanjibian, uh, where he committed another round of murders, much more and much more worse, um, at two different locations in the south. Um, and it was at that point that his absence was discovered, likely because they were getting reports of an American committing these atrocities. They were getting phone calls, radio contact. Bodies were starting set, to show yeah. up at Zangabad from right. Um The five
2: from the first set, yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah. So that was probably, you know, at that time, he's still outside the wire. Um, if you look at the 15.6, it was around that time that they started looking for him using the Zangabad um, Pegas balloon, uh, PGSS, which is like a reconnaissance balloon. Um, and they found him. They did find him with that balloon on his way back to uh, Balambi. Um, They did not, as far as I know, they did not catch any images of him doing anything. Just his um, his return trip, and that he returned. um, That this NCOX that was involved, that potentially was involved in the first round of shootings, and was the NCO that awakened you guys for the uh, the roll call, was involved in securing his belongings. Right. Um. And that during the process of his not debrief, but his reception back to the base, um, that his clothing was taken off, placed in a plastic bag. Um, certain of his belongings were burned. Some of his belongings were mm. broken, like the laptop was attempted to be broken.
3: Right.
0: Um, he was not handcuffed or anything initially, and that it, uh, and that's kind of going back. Part of the story is kind of irrelevant, but as far as you guys see, this NCO, common NCOX again, um, was directly involved from your your observations.
2: Absolutely. And also the way he reacted inside of the chow hall, right? Like he immediately said, you know, hey, he did it for you guys. Well, like, what are you talking about? We've just, we've just, this is the first time we've heard of this, right? And now to say, he did it for you guys is basically, you know, it's like telling on yourself. Right? right. Like, it's like you know more than you're letting on. Right. And the fact that, at the that, very least, at the very least, and the fact that Bales mentions talking to the other NCO, not NCO X, but another right. NCO, and saying, hey, I killed people, you know, up here, XYZ. Why would he do that? Right. That, that, yeah. that, the whole reason to do that is to fabricate this story of I did this by myself. Right. Sure. Like that, that's like planting the seed that, hey, this was me by myself and don't even consider anyone else in the scenario. Smell my barrel, you know, is like exactly like to prove that it was just me, right? As opposed to anyone else. Now I will say most of the uh, forensics have come back that it was just Bales' weapon, but we also don't know if, You know, you could easy just easily pass the weapon off, right? It's just just a matter. There's also been criticism
0: of. I mean, there were uh, American investigators were never allowed on that scene. Yeah, Mm -hmm. correct. Um, So they tried. Um, I, I, you know, reading the fifteen, six, they tried to get American investigators on the scene, but it was determined unsafe, and all of the forensic collection (laughs) was done by Afghan local police. Yeah, Um, right. So were
2: scared for their lives, and like sure. Because their their vehicle that just they brought they've got that they were coming there with like got blown up or right. you know they took contact on the way in or um, you know
0: so I mean it's safe to say the crime crime scene wasn't you know what wasn't exactly processed by you know experts yeah. um but the, the going back to the NCOs so NCOX the one that shaved woke you up all that stuff potentially he's the one you believe that may have may have gone out the wire the first time. The other, the third NCO, the one that was watching movies with them and the one that Bales held his rifle up to, mm-hmm. did you believe that he had any further role other than maybe knowing what was going on or having an inkling that was going on?
3: Uh, I personally just think he may have inclinations, but I don't, I don't think he was out there or right. doing anything like that. Part of like it's a not his plan. I personally yeah. don't think that. It's
2: completely out of his personality. He, yeah. he was kind of feckless. Feckless Church. is probably the best way to describe okay. him. So mm. like... You know like all talk bravado but like no real puncher back up had no sh- tactical strategic knowledge was promoted far too fast like sure could do nothing other than do pt from zero six to you know to zero six thirty to zero eight and then that was like the marker of him as an nco right so yeah. like he yeah he was an admin dude at best and um his character suggested exactly that of someone who would lie in bed and not believe you right because he yeah. was it's just like, if, you know, if you, if you do that to a normal person, I think that they would react much differently than, oh, I didn't wake up or I went back to sleep. Right. I, like I
0: wouldn't go back to sleep, but I'm right. not sure I would have believed him initially either. Right. Um, that's just such an outlandish thing to say. Like, who does that?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, the smell my barrel thing would have been the tip. But yeah, I, was I like, got okay, woken well, the, up with sleep. an M4 barrel in my face. I'd be- <laughs> right. Yeah. I'd yeah, be awake like, for a while for sure. It, right. Exactly. With it. Um, and, uh, it's just, and he was also his, he was shaking, like visibly shaken. Sure. You could see, you could see him that he, cause he knew how much trouble he was in. Yeah. Like you could now, see. Now both of those
0: NCOs received, you said they both received immunity. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And that was that, it was that in return for their testimony.
2: That's what we're assuming, right? Like, um, and they
0: both testified in the trial.
2: Yes. Yeah. And they're both Um, out of the army by the again when the trial ended, right? Yeah. There you go. Because they were not they were barred from reenlistment, right? Sure. Yeah. Thankfully.
0: Um, Now, NCOY, the one that we don't believe did anything, um, uh, you know, he's out. But NCOX, um, he is a police officer now. Is that is that correct?
2: That's that's what we have been
3: told. I think we saw it on his Facebook. I think someone came across his Facebook and saw that on there something like that.
2: If you get uh, immunity for your testimony, obviously, you know something, right? I didn't receive sure. immunity for my testimony, right? Sure. Um, yeah. I was, you know, so, I, and I, I, clearly, I know as much as um, almost anyone else outside of the people that knew more when the murder started, yeah. right? So if like.
0: I mean, I would consider you like in the second <laughs> ring. So obviously there's bails right. and then there's a group of NCOs and then right. there's you guys exactly you know there's, well i'm sorry well obviously the afghans that were, were there or witnessed it but right um as far as they're concerned bales is just an american soldier they don't know him from jack or adam um, right
2: and, and there had been um operations at night where small detachments had left to the base previously right so like this was not necessarily something that if I was an Afghan soldier, if I saw one soldier leave, yes, that would be alarming. Two, maybe I'm thinking, there's there more coming? And then, then that's why it would take so long for me to like process, like, yeah. oh, there aren't any more coming. Oh, okay, what is going on? Instead of instead of just being like completely alarmed by the situation, right?
0: But the but it wasn't uncommon for ODA to run small, you know, small number of missions, two, three guys.
2: Yeah, they would go out and support. Seal sometimes that we would stay back there would um, be other special operators in the area that they would go and support and they'd be like doing cordons for or all, all kinds of stuff like that um there was one particular mission where um we had a, a persistent sniper threat and the basically SEALs came in um and you know stopped the threat so and and the, the our operators basically were sort of like a cordon for that to you know you can see pretty much everything from the op center roof that was the, sure. the whole reason for its uh, design right. so
0: yeah these fact or these uh these thoughts in mind about what you, what you thought happened uh, based on what you saw which is a i'll consider it an, an informed opinion um and perspective that's definitely not just pure conjecture um where did you ever feel like that that kind of information was being suppressed or that the the army investigation didn't want to hear that, and that's maybe why you weren't called as to to actually testify at the actual court martial, um, or why you guys were being kept kind of separate. And I don't know. Did you ever? Did you ever feel like there was a, there was a concerted effort to ignore that information, or do you think that they just had their head in their sand, thinking that they got their guy?
2: Exactly. It, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, they, they, I think. I think that the way that Bales is just smart enough. I mean, this is someone that convict that did financial crimes, right? Like this is not um the dumbest person on the planet, despite his actions, right? Like horrible as they are, he's a pretty intelligent guy at times. And so this is not someone that like is unfamiliar with covering up crimes. So <laughs> um yeah, I, I I feel like his deceitful nature and actions, um yes, there's no way that the investigators would have just known that without asking us the right questions. And they just never did that. There was no, because they were given, you know, this given this, oh, this one guy did it. It was impossible to investigate. There was no forensic evidence, you know, like it was just, yeah, you just had to go with what um, the narrative was, which was this single guy did this, which yeah, he did do, what I believe most of it, but I believe that other people were involved in the, uh, the earlier attacks. And it's just a convenient truth. And it's just, you know, just to, just to roll it all together and make it one, one shooter.
0: Well, I mean, there, there's understandable international pressure too to, to close the deal pretty
2: fast. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I can't,
0: I, I mean, I can't imagine what would be worse than, you know, putting two people up for trial and only convicting one Right, um, and that, I'm I'm just that's just pure you know conjecture. Sure. I have no I have no way of knowing whether that was what was was done, but I can see that being motivation. It complicates things. It does. It does complicate things, and it makes the um, unit
2: look worse, right? Like it, it makes it look like this is a cultural thing as opposed right. to. I mean, it's in- interesting. It was a command climate survey, right? Like that's, yeah. that's what the 156 was focused on. Like what are, what is, going, what is going on in this climate? What is, how are your troops being treated? How, that's what, it, that's what the focus of the investigation was. Sure. Um, so, you know, not, that was not a criminal investigation at all. Right. That was just a fact finding. Yeah. So when they were doing that, you know, they were uncovering things about the way, you know, Bales would treat us, you know, anyone that looked different on the VSP you know so it's just
0: now there is, it has been suggested there was also a racial component to Bale's actions right and yeah. that he I mean, had certain beliefs or um positions uh straight up saying he he was just a racist guy was that something that you you concur with or that you witnessed that kind of behavior
2: yeah i mean chong you were there in the shower when I'm, i was singing i mean <laughs> i'm singing in the shower trying not trying and just imagine i'm not in afghanistan right like sure give me give me 30 seconds of just closing my eyes not in afghanistan you know and um he comes in and he's just like who's in there uh singing like a nigger and that's like <laughs> when he saw it was me he kind of was like oh uh uh sorry you know but it's like you know if it, if you're if you're already saying if you're already i mean that's just one example This guy was, you know, openly hated Afghans, you know, had called me a mulatto my first day. Like we talked about (laughs) like, you know, it was just like, like, like that's the, that's just the environment that we were going into. And he wanted to make it very clear that like, that's the way it was. He also wanted to make it very clear that he was the one controlling the environment. Sure. That like, it was him, he was going to be the one that made fun of you, not not someone else, and you don't want somebody else to racially abuse you because he liked you so much that he wanted to racially abuse you, right? Like that's right. the kind of that's the kind of sick, twistedness that was going on, basically in the eighteen months that uh, you know I knew him. You know,
0: hmm. do you think that that played a role in his decision to to commit the murders, or do you think that that had more of a role to do with the fact that he was frustrated by the Roe and just just the fact that he's been on five deployments, man, like. Yeah. you know eventually people yeah. snap um and that's not yeah. excusing what he did at all sure i mean if you're um, drunk you on
2: steroids like if you have that cocktail going through your system and sure. you've been on all those deployments and you have access to a weapon and you feel like you are emboldened or empowered to do something with it you feel like you're a protector of these guys for some reason you know what i mean and like,
1: you're and you're obviously mentally unstable to start with before you he right. you know, the military it, yeah. you probably got some issues you know
2: Right, and yeah, it's just, and then, yeah. you know, it's
1: just,
2: yeah. So, he was
3: having financial issues, he got passed over for E7, just a whole right. bunch of like, you know, the steroid yeah. use, the alcohol
2: use. The things he would say about his wife, just like calling his Jesus. wife like a fat cow, like calling his kids ugly. Like just unnecessarily mean shit that you don't need to say. Yeah.
1: Like that
2: that was, was, was being said to somehow impress us, you know, sure. it just mm. was, yeah, yeah, it was just... Yeah, it was just like, like almost like boasting or jovial, like, man, like he wants to joke around a bunch, like have a locker room talk, you know, that's why he joined the military kind of thing, which is, you know, like, not why I joined the military, right?
1: <laughs> Brandon, did you uh, did you get any exposure to his kind of racist,
3: you know? Um, not to that extent. I mean, you know, just kind of the typical, like, you know, shoot ragheads, things like that, that you would kind of hear in an infantry environment, but I never
2: was partial to anything yeah. like Alexander was. Yeah, sure. General Waddell, the guy who did the fifteen six. Um, you know, they're asking me about the race questions, right? And I'm asking the race questions. And one of one of my answers is like, you know, he's like, why didn't you say anything to anybody? And I'm like, Who am I gonna tell, man?
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: My fucking platoons aren't. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Who am I going to tell that my platoon sergeant is racially abusing me? You know, like my first sergeant who also, you know, kind of looked like a fucking racist. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Who was also like in part of the locker room talk who also, you know, like was, you know, that kind of guy. You know what I mean? Like he, he didn't step in and like sit there and say, hey, you know, we can't, I'm hearing reports of this. No, it's no way. Like he, you know, emboldened these kind of leaders to exist. So he bears some responsibility for it, but you know, like like bail snapped for a lot of reasons, but you know, access to weapons, alcohol, steroids, and then the motive all roll into one, you know? And it's just terrible.
1: Yeah, man. And uh, I think that's, it's wild to think that your guys' life was so dramatically shifted because of your exposure to this particular situation and this person. And, uh, you know, that's just, it's, it's unfortunate, but you know, circumstance drives everything. Um, so as you're leaning into the end of the trial, you know, what did that, you know, how did that take shape and like, what kind of, you know, what kind of things were y'all thinking when the conclusion of the trial was kind of drawn to an end? Did you think this is something I can bury and be done with? Is it something that you're going to carry forward no matter what? I mean, what was going on in your guys' mind?
3: I know for me at the time, I was glad to just have it over and done with. But it's such a unique situation that on social media, almost every six months to a year, this dude pops back up trying to, you know, get pardoned or just, you know, writing GQ articles, you know, RPL wrote an article, the team captain wrote an article. So it's almost something that's impossible to escape, even though he was convicted with life. You know, I was watching stars with that one documentary with the LT from the 82nd who pops up, Bales pops up like this dude is just like all over the place. Yeah. I feel like it's hard to escape this dude. Yeah.
2: yeah, it's 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 crazy. I've had. So I managed to uh, I stayed in the army and I was in Hawaii and doing a I was the VTC for a manga die. Um, and one of the officers recognized me. Um, he was the alpha company commander and literally, you know, he was just like stopped and he was like, Hey man, how are you? And I'm like, Hey sir. You know, he's like, he recognized the patch and like asked about Bobby. You know what I mean? It's a happens happened in one of my, you know, um, U dub classes it happened in one of my classes where there's a guy who served in one, two, three, and he was like, Hey, you know, he found out I served in two, three. He was like, Hey, do you know, Bobby, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately I really do, yeah, man. Better yeah. Than Yeah. Right. And so like, I need to get this out to to people understand, like, this is, uh, it's just, it'll never go away. It seems like the pardoning, like with Trump, almost always, like we thought for sure, um, all the way until January 21st that, you know, he may get a pardon. I mean, we, we just, so that obviously why, why, why would I want to talk out, speak out when you think potentially this guy may be, you know, out, you know, for the, and being capable of what he's capable of,
1: you know? So, yeah. I mean, that's got to be something that that I hope for you guys, and I won't speak for Curtis here, but I hope personally that this shit gets buried under Leavenworth somewhere because it's yeah. not fair to you guys to be subject to the actions of an individual. And uh, it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not fair to subject soldiers to the actions of people that are way outside their realm of responsibility and their control. You know, you guys are there you're doing your job. you were doing it pretty damn good from what I can gather. And uh you know, you got nothing but respect from us for for just buckling down and getting it done. Because yeah. Yeah, I appreciate uh, that. Yeah, man. You guys were in, you were in a tight spot and you know, as that if that deployment would have you know been through its full iteration, it would have been a pretty pretty hardcore rough deployment for you guys. Um so you were you were doing the work, you know. Right. And it's a shame that this person has uh essentially taking the narrative away from you and that narrative is not allowed to reach its natural conclusion. And so you know, on that behalf, sorry for you guys, man, but also, you know, view this thing as something that is, is a part of your past, but it's not a definition. Right. doesn't have to right. define you guys. Yeah. doesn't have to determine who you are, what you were when you were there when you did your job and you did it well, and it doesn't have to determine what you are going forward, you know? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we always do at the end of these is, is to give everybody a chance to speak their mind. Um, You guys have, you know, you've had more or less a chance to do that, but if there's anything you want to say, anything we haven't covered, anything that you want to just kind of get out there. Um, We give you guys, you know, your chance to do so. So, Take it away and tell us what's up uh
2: go ahead dude <laughs> i'd like to, i'd like to talk about how i was able to cope uh um, sure you know a lot of people you know there's a lot of i mean going through something like that is just awful right and like especially you, when you're in the position of you know you've seen those kids before right like you've interacted with those locals before you've interacted with bobby you know what i mean you you're just really close to it and it always keeps coming back up so um one of the things I was a really a blessing for me was actually going to S3 um, because the new leadership that came in um, were outstanding, right? So I I worked for um, Sergeant Major uh, Robert Fordenberry, and he's, he's also one of the guys, the oldest Ranger graduate. He graduated Ranger school like 44 years old. <laughs> so he's kind of like an inspirational hero. And um, right now he's got a pretty awesome job. He's about to retire, so. Um, it was honestly him allowing me lots of space and not putting me right back into a line unit. Like if I had gone back to a line unit, I would have, I would have spun sideways, man, because I just wouldn't have been able to like, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to do what Chong did. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) there's no way I would have been able to do that. And like, for me, that was key because he opened My eyes to okay, the army is way bigger than this one unit, which is my experience, right? This has been the sum of my experience, this one unit. And he was basically like, "Hey, go try to get in Hawaii." And so, um, when I got to Hawaii, um, that was when everything changed for me. I would say because I was put in as a E5 team leader. (laughs) So, you know what I mean? I showed up as an E5 team leader, and I was like like ready to go and it was like a completely different page for me so what i did is i just invested everything i had all of these uncertainties all of these lessons learned all of this like we call it trauma i guess nowadays it's probably woke to say that but all of this trauma and put it in and just box it up and just i try to put it into um bettering myself like literally yeah. provide being the nco and being the leader that i wanted to have right and so um that allowed me that mentality allowed me to grow and learn so much more about myself, uh, allowed me to go to different schools and really explore the full spectrum of what the army could offer me as an individual, which I try to put in my practice every day now as a civilian. So sure. it was because of those experiences, getting to go and do different things. Um because of that one, basically transitional touch point, that one transformational moment of my head in my life where it was like, hey, you're going to, you know, stick this thing out. Don't give up on the army and try, keep trying. Because it was been too easy to just to get out of the army and just like, like, have like, look, you know, have my head down and like, <laughs> Walk around and tell this story a hundred times to everyone that could that would listen to me and like wear a CIB hat and like talk, you know, like (laughs) you know, ask me about Bob, you know what I mean? Have my own Wikipedia page or something like that, you know what I mean? And that's you know, I tried to move on from it, but I really feel like I needed to address it, and that was the reason for doing this is just because, like, like we talked about, it just it comes up all the time. It came up in boards I would have like. You know, Sarge so majors looking at uh, my ERB and it's like, "Hey, you only have five months deployed, man. What's going? What happened there? Why? How do you have a CIB? Hmm. What unit were you from? Right? Because right? they want to know. Sarge so major's not going to promote someone that you know. It's like, "Hey, man, what? Like, did you ditch out on a deployment? You know what I mean? So then you yeah. basically tell the story, <laughs> and so like you just tell it from front to back. Like, hey, this is what happened, and you know it." it's all it's 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 it has its merits in that in that regard because it's able to humanize you in some way but um yeah it's and what just, are you doing now man uh i'm a graduate student at the university of Washington uh, i built some pretty cool gis projects uh products for, that you guys will see and um <laughs> yeah um i'm gonna be working for a local management company here in in the Seattle area coming up so by the time this interview drops i'll probably be out of school so yeah
0: Nice. Oh, early congratulations, then, man. That's, Thanks, uh, <laughs> that's one thing that we really enjoy is bringing bringing guys on veterans um, that have found a, a way to move forward outside of the military. Whether it's grad school, you know, Luke has a degree in Chinese language and literature, which I think is still the most unique veteran <laughs> uh, degree I've seen so far. But I mean, completely, there's useful. pilots and there's. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> masters in sociology and you right. know psychology and State Department guy. It's just really neat to see people move on. It's good. Um and do really well. So get yeah. congratulations on completing your degree, um, finding work and, so. and finding a way to move on, man. It's it's yeah. You know, you you've dealt with you dealt with plenty and you found a way to to channel it and turn it into something else. And that's that's a good example for yeah. for our listeners. Yep. And Brandon.
3: All right. Uh <clears throat> well. <laughs> So I was one of the unlucky ones. I think I was only one of the three that went back to the company. Mm -hmm. So I got to go back to the company and the platoon leadership, the PL and the platoon sergeant were with our other two squads in a completely different VSP. So our relationship was pretty much non-existent. I was almost like a brand new Joe again, I essentially felt like. So I stayed there for about nine months and then went to Korea. But the whole time I was there, definitely my my morale was like below zero, Uh, definitely (laughs) Probably had an alcohol problem. Definitely gotten, definitely consumed too much alcohol. Uh, Went to Korea. Still kind of had an alcohol problem. Gotten to a little bit of trouble. Went to Fort Bragg. Got out of Fort Bragg. Um, but just kind of like when I look back on the deployment, you know, it's nothing for me like positive. Like we didn't. I feel like we didn't clear an area of Taliban. We didn't really lift up these people's lives in in any way. If anything, we made it worse. And I look back on that and I just feel bad about it. You know, I feel bad for, right. like, I feel like when we talk about this narrative, it's only the Americans, right? We never really go in right. to the 16 Afghans that were killed. And I feel, sure. when I think about it, I just feel horrible for those people. Yeah, sure. You know, uh, I was up in the a a Tower. I got to see their bodies. And it was just something that uh, has really bothered me for a long time. But I, you know, I got my, I'm with my better half now. And she definitely <laughs> helped me with a lot of things. And I'm very thankful for her. But um overall, I think it affected me pretty negatively because we were, when we were back on Rear D, you know, the rest of our platoon, the rest of our company, the rest of our battalion was still in Afghanistan. And while they were there, our um <clears throat> the other two squads in our platoon, we lost the dude. We lost one of our guys from our platoon while we were at home. So just the whole situation just made me like just kind of like I just feel embarrassed in the situation that I was a part of something like that. Um it just kind of have a, has a complete negative effect on me about the military. Sure. But, you know, I'm over that now. Like, life is good. I have no complaints now. <laughs> but uh, just kind of like when I look back on the Army, it's just not a positive experience for me personally.
1: Yeah. Right. That's understandable, man. I mean, I I can uh, – there's a whole podcast to be made about my beef with the Army. <laughs> <laughs> so, I understand that experience. And, like, I would say that a large portion of mine was negative, and I wasn't even subject to – the bullshit that you were so but i think it's it's you know i understand like the trauma of what you guys went through was pretty significant not only in regards to seeing the afghan civilians and the tragedy of that i mean it's a, it's a tragedy it really is and we're 8000 miles removed in 9 years now but in those villages that's a story that's still told you know and those mm-hmm. are lives that are still impacted
0: and for better or worse, I mean, that is that is going to be, for those villages, that is the legacy of Americans. Yeah. You know, like, especially for the, the ones in those those families and those villages, like, when they say, well, what, what was it like when the Americans were here and they're going to say they yeah, killed this us? This is what it was like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they killed you us. Know, they killed their um, children. Yeah. Uh, and for a lot of Afghans, that's the story. They still talk about that. And uh, that, I think, is that, I agree with Luke, I think that's the real tragedy. Um, yeah. You know, not taking away from what you guys experienced at all, because that's it's awful. It's terrible. I'm alive.
2: alive, Like you're you're alive. I'm alive. And you have the resources
0: to deal with what happened to you. Right. But you know, we bulldozed Balambi and we pulled all of our forces out of Panjaway, not even like a year and a half after what happened there.
1: Yeah.
0: Um and kind of just gave up. Um Mm -hmm. if we put all that work. And we caused all that harm. And, you know, obviously there was other stuff that went on, you know, the casts and all that kind of stuff. And you just imagine your backyard being a war zone. And that's what it was for the people of Panjway for eight years uh, or 80 years or yeah. Um, yeah. however long it, it's been. But um, to, to cause that damage. And then now it's back in the hands of the Taliban. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, and there's nothing we can do to help those people anymore. We gave them, what, a couple hundred thousand dollars and thanked them for their service and apologized for their losses, but...
2: Yeah, yeah. $50,000 to each victim. Yeah. yeah. That's the cost. That was the cost. That was the determined cost of life, right? Like, that was a negotiated price. Yeah. And like, knowing that, just knowing that in my head, i will never be able to lose that amount of money to not understand that's that's the amount of money that we decided that each life was worth. Right. Yeah. Like, we spent half a million dollars on to basically i mean that's the culture right but that's sure. that's the, that's the that's the money that we paid that was yeah. and when you think about that you just like
0: and that's an important thing to note too is that we, right. we talk about this stuff a lot about how we we pay reparations for damage to buildings and you know the loss of lives but that it that is part that is culturally Truly. normal that you you if you harm somebody you are expected to make reparations in some form whether that's the donation of some of your livestock or your land or, right. you know, right. fit money or uh, a bride or something like that. I mean, that's, that's the mon- the, the money itself is just kind of part of that culture. But as an American, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's not part of our culture. Right. You know, well, it's not like,
1: is paltry at best. Yeah. Any amount for the yeah. U S government, you know, and that's just, but you can't buy off death. No, you know, it's, um, no. that's a, that's a hell of a price to have to pay. So Yeah, it was but an yeah, SGLI, you think about it.
0: Yeah. 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 Just, well, I mean, it's... how are they only worth fifty thousand? But if you get smoked, you're worth five hundred.
2: Exactly. Yeah. That was the exact mm-hmm. conversation that we bales had in our room. <laughs> um, you know, make sure we have to do these wills, these SGLIs, because uh, if you guys get killed, I don't you know, I want to be responsible for you guys not uh giving your families the money. And it's like, okay, you know, I appreciate yeah. that. You know, think looking out for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and
0: you know, not to give him any credit at all. But if you're watching this and you're a soldier and you're in, you haven't done that. You yeah, need no to. You it. need to do it. It's you need to make sure away. you're. Your fa- Even if you don't have any family, you know, make sure it's made out to your 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 parents, not your girlfriend. Definitely <laughs> not <laughs> your girlfriend. Don't worry. The, <laughs> the, the boys and ships going come
1: uh, after it when they repossess the Camry, anyway. So yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> boys and girls club, United Way, give yes. them yeah, the money. Donate it. Do something. Donate it. Donate
2: yeah. it. You could change somebody's life. You know what I mean. Yeah, that's so, for sure. Um I'm w I am want to say my piece and
0: then we'll give Luke a chance to close it out. Um I am thankful that you guys reached out to us to give us the opportunity to tell your story. Um I hope that we've we've managed to help you tell it in the way that you envisioned it being told and that you um are comfortable and happy with the result. I um, mean, obviously, you know, if if you're not, we'll make some edits, yeah. um, or you'll just never listen to it, or you just, you know, give us a four <laughs> give us a one star review on Apple iTunes or something. Um, but we, in all seriousness, we really appreciate you coming to this, coming to us, and trusting us to tell this story. Um, even the 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 kind of the new information aside, just the opportunity to express what it was like to be witness to something like that—probably one of the most historic events of the war in Afghanistan. You know, it's right up alongside there with the initial invasion and Operation Anaconda Tora Bora. I mean, it's it's there. It's it's one of the stories. Um so we appreciate you giving us the opportunity to help you tell that. Um and I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that was that was the that was the legacy of your deployment. Um cuz as Luke said it could have been so much more. Um but I'd also want to caution you against Resting on the fact that that was the only thing that came out of it, you know, we were talking before and how many troops, how many contacts that you had, and the connections that you guys made with the ODA and your insight into how the war was being fought in 2012 is unique. And there's a lot of people, ourselves included, that didn't get that perspective. So I don't want you to frame that entire deployment simply on the uh, the actions of one douchebag. Um, I hope that as you guys mature um, and move on with your life, so you can look back and see it framed in other terms as well. You know, now that we've gone and made a podcast about it, <laughs> but, uh, but thank you. Thank you guys. That's what I really want to say. Is just thank you for the opportunity and thanks for, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, sure. man. I mean, ditto to that. And, um, I feel the same way. I'm I really appreciate that you guys had the implicit trust in us to allow you the platform. Um, again, I hope that we did right by your story. I hope we did right by the civilians on the ground who were on the receiving end of this. Um, you know, I said it earlier, and i you know I don't need to say it again, but I admire the fact that you guys have created lives for yourselves on the back end of this thing. Because there's guys who go through a whole deployment and see just like a little bit of combat, and they see a couple of fucked up things, or whatever, and that defines them for the rest of their lives. What you saw, what you guys saw, was was an incredible circumstance, as Curtis alluded to, and the fact that you can come out in the back end of that and be better for it and be better in spite of it is encouraging to me. And and it's a lesson to those out there who are dragging their feet and just kind of, you know, hunkering down because, okay, you, you saw some combat, whatever, man, like that's cool, but get out and do some good stuff because there's no reason that you can't get a good job at Intel. There's no reason that you can't keep going to school because you know, the kind of stuff that's, that's in the shadow of your military service or rather your military service is in the shadow of is something that uh, you've 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 negated in your actions. So you have my uh, my admiration and my respect for that. So yeah. I think uh, awesome. all I got to say is thanks, guys. Thanks for coming on. And we, we really appreciate it, really. Yeah.
3: No, thank you. Thank you for giving yeah, us the opportunity. Real. You know, for me personally, I had zero intention of ever doing anything like this. It was like Alexander <laughs> that hit me up and convinced me. So I appreciate you guys on your platform. Yeah. You. So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Panjway Podcast. If you liked what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. New episodes every Monday on all major podcast platforms, Facebook and YouTube. Visit www.thepanjwaypodcast.com for more information.